Chapter 18, Part 3, The Voyage of the Beagle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Good The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin Chapter 18, Part 3, Tahiti and New Zealand December 23rd at a place called Waimate, about fifteen miles from the Bay of Islands and midway between the eastern and western coasts, the missionaries have purchased some land for agricultural purposes. I had been introduced to the Reverend W. Williams, who, upon my expressing a wish, invited me to pay him a visit there. Mr. Bushby, the British resident, offered to take me in his boat by a creek where I should see a pretty waterfall, and by which means my walk would be shortened. He likewise procured for me a guide. Upon asking a neighboring chief to recommend a man, the chief himself offered to go, but his ignorance of the value of money was so complete that at first he asked how many pounds I would give him, but afterwards was well contented with two dollars. When I showed the chief a very small bundle, which I wanted to carry, it became absolutely necessary for him to take a slave. These feelings of pride are beginning to wear away, but formerly a leading man would sooner have died than undergone the indignity of carrying the smallest burden. My companion was a light, active man, dressed in a dirty blanket, and with his face completely tattooed. He had formerly been a great warrior. He appeared to be on very cordial terms with Mr. Bushby, but at various times they had quarreled violently. Mr. Bushby remarked that a little quiet irony would frequently silence any one of these natives in their most blustering moments. This chief has come and harangued Mr. Bushby in a hectoring manner, saying, "'Great chief, a great man,' A friend of mine has come to pay me a visit. You must give him something good to eat, some fine presents, etc. Mr. Bushby has allowed him to finish his discourse, and then has quietly replied by some answer such as, What else shall your slave do for you? The man would then instantly, with a very comical expression, cease his braggadocio. Some time ago Mr. Bushby suffered a far more serious attack. A chief and a party of men tried to break into his house in the middle of the night, and, not finding this so easy, commenced a brisk firing with their muskets. Mr. Bushby was slightly wounded, but the party was at length driven away. Shortly afterwards it was discovered who was the aggressor, and a general meeting of the chiefs was convened to consider the case. It was considered by the New Zealanders as very atrocious inasmuch as it was a night attack and that Mrs. Bushby was lying ill in the house. This latter circumstance, much to their honor, being considered in all cases as a protection. The chiefs agreed to confiscate the land of the aggressor to the King of England. The whole proceeding, however, in thus trying and punishing a chief was entirely without precedent. The aggressor, moreover, lost caste in the estimation of his equals, and this was considered by the British as of more consequence than the confiscation of his land. 
As the boat was shoving off, a second chief stepped into her, who only wanted the amusement of the passage up and down the creek. I never saw a more horrid and ferocious expression than this man had. It immediately struck me I had somewhere seen his likeness. It will be found in Wretch's Outlines to Schiller's Ballad of Fridolin, where two men are pushing Robert into the burning iron furnace. It is the man who has his arm on Robert's breast. Physiognomy here spoke the truth. This chief had been a notorious murderer and was an errant coward to boot. At the point where the boat landed, Mr. Bushby accompanied me a few hundred yards on the road. I could not help admiring the cool impudence of the hoary old villain, whom we left lying in the boat, when he shouted to Mr. Bushby, "'Do not you stay long. I shall be tired of waiting here.' We now commenced our walk. The road lay along a well-beaten path, bordered on each side by the tall fern which covers the whole country. After traveling some miles we came to a little country village where a few hovels were collected together and some patches of ground cultivated with potatoes. The introduction of the potato has been the most essential benefit to the islands. It is now much more used than any native vegetable. New Zealand is favored by one great natural advantage, namely that the inhabitants can never perish from famine. The whole country abounds with fern, and the roots of this plant, if not very palatable, yet contain much nutriment. A native can always subsist on these, and on the shellfish, which are abundant in all parts of the seacoast. The villages are chiefly conspicuous by the platforms which are raised on four posts ten or twelve feet above the ground, and on which the produce of the fields is kept secure from all accidents. On coming near one of the huts, I was much amused by seeing in due form the ceremony of rubbing, or, as it ought to be called, pressing noses. The women, on our first approach, began uttering something in a most dolorous voice. They then squatted themselves down and held up their faces. My companion, standing over them, one after another, placed the bridge of his nose at right angles to theirs, and commenced pressing. This lasted rather longer than a cordial shake of the hand with us, and as we vary the force of the grasp of the hand in shaking, so do they in pressing." During the process they uttered comfortable little grunts, very much in the same manner as two pigs do when rubbing against each other. I noticed that the slave would press noses with any one he met, indifferently either before or after his master, the chief. Although among the savages the chief has absolute power of life and death over his slave, yet there is an entire absence of ceremony between them. Mr. Burchell has remarked the same thing in southern Africa, with the rude bachapins. Where civilization has arrived at a certain point, complex formalities soon arise between the different grades of society. Thus, at Tahiti, all were formerly obliged to uncover themselves as low as the waist in the presence of the king. The ceremony of pressing noses having been duly completed with all present, we seated ourselves in a circle in the front of one of the hovels, and rested there half an hour. All the hovels have nearly the same form and dimensions, and all agree in being filthily dirty. 
They resemble a cowshed with one end open, but having a partition a little way within, with a square hole in it, making a small, gloomy chamber. In this the inhabitants keep all their property, and when the weather is cold, they sleep there. They eat, however, and pass their time in the open part in front. My guides having finished their pipes, we continued our walk. The path led through the same undulating country, the whole uniformly clothed as before, with fern. On our right hand we had a serpentine river, the banks of which were fringed with trees, and here and there on the hillsides there was a clump of wood. The whole scene, in spite of its green color, had rather a desolate aspect. The sight of so much fern impresses the mind with an idea of sterility. This, however, is not correct, for wherever the fern grows thick and breast-high, the land by tillage becomes productive. Some of the residents think that all this extensive open country originally was covered with forests, and that it has been cleared by fire. It is said that by digging in the barest spots, lumps of the kind of resin that flows from the cowrie pine are frequently found. The natives had an evident motive in clearing the country, for the fern, formerly a staple article of food, flourishes only in the open-cleared tracks. The almost entire absence of associated grasses, which forms so remarkable a feature in the vegetation of this island, may perhaps be accounted for by the land having been aboriginally covered with forest trees. The soil is volcanic. In several parts we passed over shaggy lavas and craters could clearly be distinguished on several of the neighboring hills. Although the scenery is nowhere beautiful and only occasionally pretty, I enjoyed my walk. I should have enjoyed it more if my companion, the chief, had not possessed extraordinary conversational powers. I knew only three words, good, bad, and yes, and with these I answered all his remarks, without, of course, having understood one word he said. This, however, was quite sufficient. I was a good listener, an agreeable person, and he never ceased talking to me. At length we reached Waimate. After having passed over so many miles of an uninhabited, useless country, the sudden appearance of an English farmhouse and its well-dressed fields, placed there as if by an enchanter's wand, was exceedingly pleasant. Mr. Williams not being at home, I received in Mr. Davy's house a cordial welcome. After drinking tea with his family party, we took a stroll about the farm. At Waimate, there are three large houses where the missionary gentlemen, Messrs. Williams, Davies, and Clark, reside, and near them are the huts of the native laborers. On an adjoining slope, fine crops of barley and wheat were standing in full ear, and in another part, fields of potatoes and clover. But I cannot attempt to describe all I saw. There were large gardens with every fruit and vegetable which England produces, and many belonging to a warmer clime. I may instance asparagus, kidney beans, cucumbers, rhubarb, apples, pears, figs, peaches, apricots, grapes, olives, gooseberries, currants, hops, gorse for fences, and English oaks, also many kinds of flowers. Around the farmyard there were stables, a thrashing barn with its winnowing machine, a blacksmith's forge, and on the ground plowshares and other tools. 
In the middle was that happy mixture of pigs and poultry, lying comfortably together, as in every English farmyard. At the distance of a few hundred yards, where the water of a little rill had been dammed up into a pool, there was a large and substantial water mill. All this is very surprising when it is considered that five years ago nothing but the fern flourished here. Moreover, native workmanship, taught by the missionaries, has effected this change. The lesson of the missionary is the enchanter's wand. The house had been built, the windows framed, the fields plowed, and even the trees grafted by a New Zealander. At the mill, a New Zealander was seen powdered white with flour, like his brother Miller in England. When I looked at this whole scene, I thought it admirable. It was not merely that England was brought vividly before my mind, yet as the evening drew to a close, the domestic sounds, the fields of corn, the distant undulating country with its trees, might well have been mistaken for our fatherland. Nor was it the triumphant feeling at seeing what Englishmen could effect, but rather the high hopes thus inspired for the future progress of this fine island. Several young men, redeemed by the missionaries from slavery, were employed on the farm. They were dressed in a shirt, jacket, and trousers, and had a respectable appearance. Judging from one trifling anecdote, I should think they must be honest. When walking in the fields, a young laborer came up to Mr. Davies and gave him a knife and gimlet, saying that he had found them on the road and did not know to whom they belonged. These young men and boys appeared very merry and good-humored. In the evening I saw a party of them at cricket. When I thought of the austerity of which the missionaries have been accused, I was amused by observing one of their own sons taking an active part in the game. A more decided and pleasing change was manifested in the young women, who acted as servants within the houses. Their clean, tidy, and healthy appearance, like that of the dairymaids in England, formed a wonderful contrast with the women of the filthy hovels in Coerotica. The wives of the missionaries tried to persuade them not to be tattooed, but a famous operator having arrived from the south, they said, We really must just have a few lines on our lips, else when we grow old our lips will shrivel and we shall be so very ugly. There is not nearly so much tattooing as formerly, but as it is a badge of distinction between the chief and the slave, it will probably long be practiced. So soon does any train of ideas become habitual that the missionaries told me that even in their eyes a plain face looked mean, and not like that of a New Zealand gentleman. Late in the evening I went to Mr. Williams's house, where I passed the night. I found there a large party of children collected together for Christmas Day, and all sitting round a table at tea. I never saw a nicer or more merry group. And to think that this was the center of the land of cannibalism, murder, and all atrocious crimes. The cordiality and happiness so plainly pictured in the faces of the little circle appeared equally felt by the older persons of the mission. December 24th. In the morning, prayers were read, in the native tongue, to the whole family. After breakfast, I rambled about the gardens and farm. This was a market day, when the natives of the surrounding hamlets bring their potatoes, Indian corn, or pigs to exchange for blankets, tobacco, and sometimes, through the persuasions of the missionaries, for soap. 
Mr. Davies's eldest son, who manages a farm of his own, is the man of business in the market. The children of the missionaries, who came while young to the island, understand the language better than their parents, and can get anything more readily done by the natives. A little before noon, Messrs. Williams and Davies walked with me to a part of the neighboring forest to show me the famous cowrie pine. I measured one of the noble trees and found it thirty-one feet in circumference above the roots. There was another close by, which I did not see, thirty-three feet, and I heard of one no less than forty feet. These trees are remarkable for their smooth cylindrical boles, which run up to a height of sixty and even ninety feet, with a nearly equal diameter, and without a single branch. The crown of branches at the summit is out of all proportion small to the trunk, and the leaves are likewise small compared with the branches. The forest was here almost composed of the cowrie, and the largest trees, from the parallelism of their sides, stood up like giant columns of wood. The timber of the cowrie is the most valuable production of the island. Moreover, a quantity of resin oozes from the bark, which is sold at a penny a pound to the Americans. But its use was then unknown. Some of the New Zealand forests must be impenetrable to an extraordinary degree. Mr. Matthews informed me that one forest, only 34 miles in width, and separating two inhabited districts, had only lately, for the first time, been crossed. He and another missionary, each with a party of about 50 men, undertook to open a road, but it cost more than a fortnight's labor. In the woods I saw very few birds. With regard to animals, it is a most remarkable fact that so large an island, extending over more than 700 miles in latitude, and in many parts 90 broad, with varied stations, a fine climate, and land of all heights, from 14,000 feet downwards, with the exception of a small rat, did not possess one indigenous animal. The several species of that gigantic genus of birds, the Dinornis, seem here to have replaced mammiferous quadrupeds in the same manner as the reptiles still do at the Galapagos archipelago. It is said that the common Norway rat, in the short space of two years, annihilated in this northern end of the island the New Zealand species. In many places I noticed several sorts of weeds which, like the rats, I was forced to own as countrymen. A leak has overrun whole districts, and will prove very troublesome, but it was imported as a favor by a French vessel. The common dock is also widely disseminated, and will, I fear, forever remain a proof of the rascality of an Englishman who sold the seeds for those of the tobacco plant. On returning from our pleasant walk to the house, I dined with Mr. Williams, and then, a horse being lent me, I returned to the Bay of Islands. I took leave of the missionaries with thankfulness for their kind welcome and with feelings of high respect for their gentlemanlike, useful, and upright characters. I think it would be difficult to find a body of men better adapted for the high office which they fulfill. Christmas Day In a few more days, the fourth year of our absence from England will be completed. Our first Christmas Day was spent at Plymouth, the second at St. Martin's Cove near Cape Horn, the third at Port Desire in Patagonia, 
the fourth at anchor in a wild harbor in the peninsula of Tremont, this fifth here, and the next, I trust in Providence, will be in England. We attended divine service in the chapel of Pahia, part of the service being read in English and part in the native language. Whilst at New Zealand we did not hear of any recent acts of cannibalism, but Mr. Stokes found burnt human bones strewn round a fireplace on a small island near the anchorage. But these remains of a comfortable banquet might have been lying there for several years. It is probable that the moral state of the people will rapidly improve. Mr. Bushby mentioned one pleasing anecdote as a proof of the sincerity of some, at least of those who profess Christianity. One of his young men left him, who had been accustomed to read prayers to the rest of the servants. Some weeks afterwards, happening to pass late in the evening by an outhouse, he saw and heard one of his men reading the Bible with difficulty by the light of the fire to the others. After this, the party knelt and prayed. In their prayers they mentioned Mr. Bushby and his family, and the missionaries, each separately in his respective district. December 26th. Mr. Bushby offered to take Mr. Sullivan and myself in his boat some miles up the river to Kawakawa, and proposed afterwards to walk on to the village of Waiomio, where there are some curious rocks. Following one of the arms of the bay, we enjoyed a pleasant row, and passed through pretty scenery until we came to a village beyond which the boat could not pass. From this place, a chief and a party of men volunteered to walk with us to Waiomio, a distance of four miles. The chief was at this time rather notorious from having lately hung one of his wives and a slave for adultery. When one of the missionaries remonstrated with him, he seemed surprised, and said he thought he was exactly following the English method. Old Shonji, who happened to be in England during the Queen's trial, expressed great disapprobation at the whole proceeding. He said he had five wives, and he would rather cut off all their heads than be so much troubled about one. Leaving this village, we crossed over to another, seated on a hillside at a little distance. The daughter of a chief, who was still a heathen, had died there five days before. The hovel in which she had expired had been burnt to the ground. Her body, being enclosed between two small canoes, was placed upright on the ground and protected by an enclosure bearing wooden images of their gods, and the whole was painted bright red so as to be conspicuous from afar. Her gown was fastened to the coffin, and her hair being cut off was cast at its foot. The relatives of the family had torn the flesh of their arms, bodies, and faces so that they were covered with clotted blood and the old women looked most filthy, disgusting objects. On the following day, some of the officers visited this place and found the women still howling and cutting themselves. We continued our walk and soon reached Waiomio. Here there are some singular masses of limestone resembling ruined castles. These rocks have long served for burial places and in consequence are held too sacred to be approached. One of the young men, however, cried out, let us all be brave, and he ran on ahead. But when within a hundred yards, the whole party thought better of it and stopped short. With perfect indifference, however, they allowed us to examine the whole place. At this village we rested some hours, 
during which time there was a long discussion with Mr. Bushby concerning the right of sale of certain lands. One old man, who appeared a perfect genealogist, illustrated the successive possessors by bits of stick driven into the ground. Before leaving the houses, a little basketful of roasted sweet potatoes was given to each of our party, and we all, according to the custom, carried them away to eat on the road. I noticed that among the women employed in cooking, there was a man-slave. It must have been a humiliating thing for a man in this warlike country to be employed in doing that which is considered the lowest woman's work. Slaves are not allowed to go to war, but this, perhaps, can hardly be considered as a hardship. I heard of one poor wretch who, during hostilities, ran away to the opposite party. Being met by two men, he was immediately seized. But as they could not agree to whom he should belong, each stood over him with a stone hatchet, and seemed determined that the other at least should not take him away alive. The poor man, almost dead with fright, was only saved by the address of a chief's wife. We afterwards enjoyed a pleasant walk back to the boat, but did not reach the ship till late in the evening. December 30th. In the afternoon we stood out of the Bay of Islands on our course to Sydney. I believe we were all glad to leave New Zealand. It is not a pleasant place. Amongst the natives there is absent that charming simplicity which is found in Tahiti, and the greater part of the English are the very refuse of society. Neither is the country itself attractive. I look back but to one bright spot, and that is Waimate, with its Christian inhabitants. End of chapter 18, part 3 Recording by Carol Good www.soundsgood.com